Father, amazing, amazing grace. It saved a wretch like me. That's why we're here. It's the only reason we're here. Somebody, somebody took the initiative to save us. So bless this moment. Energize it in the Spirit and in Scripture. Get your, get your word through to all of us, I humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose we'd have to agree, looking at the evidence, that God has a huge PR problem on this planet. I mean, his, his approval ratings are in the tank. If he were running for president, Donald Trump would win. Oh, I get it. God wrote a book once upon a time, and it's the bestseller over any other piece of human literature. I understand that. But do you know what they're saying about the book? One author, I put his words, a skeptic on the screen. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I can't even read it. But I want to say to that author, why don't you tell us how you really feel? Here's another one. Here's another author, a skeptic, you would guess on the screen, and it is astride this contemptible history of religious atrocity and scientific ignorance that Christianity now stands as an absurdly unselfconscious apotheosis, which is a culmination or a climax of all the mess behind it. The notion that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that his death constitutes a successful propitiation of a loving God is a direct and undisguised inheritance of the superstitious bloodletting that is plagued, bewildered people throughout history, end quote. I repeat, God has a huge PR problem on this planet. And guess what? He has an enemy who with blinding rage and desperate cunning is out to shred God's reputation, at least in the court of uh, public opinion. And so far, he's winning. A little classic called Steps to Christ. Let me just put a line on the screen for you. Your study guide has just begun, by the way. No fanfare. It's, we're now in it. Pull that study guide out of your worship bulletin. Those of you watching on t- television or on live streaming right now, www.newperceptions.tv. That's our new website, newperceptions.tv. You go there. You're looking for Charmed into Righteousness and today's teaching, The Fairest Judge. All right, Steps to Christ. It's on the screen. Satan has led humanity to conceive of God as a being whose chief attribute is stern justice, one who is a severe, write it in, judge, a severe judge, a harsh, exacting creditor. He pictured the Creator as a being who is watching with jealous eye to discern the errors and mistakes of men that he may visit judgments upon them, end quote. How did that writer put it just a moment ago, speaking of God, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a capriciously malevolent bully? Turns out there's been a whisper campaign, a smear campaign to shred the divine reputation. So what's a God to do? The next line, same book, Steps to Christ, on the screen. It was to remove 
Key word. Jot it down. It was to remove this dark shadow by revealing to the world the infinite love of God that Jesus came to live among men and women. The Son of God came from heaven to make manifest the Father. End quote. Let's check it out. Open, the, open your Bible to the fourth gospel. That would be the gospel of John. Let's go. Every, every reference we look at now will have John in front of it. John 1, the, the majestic prologue to the fourth gospel. Oh, this prologue, I could, I just, it's, 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 it has to be the pinnacle of human literature. John 1, though, the last line of the prologue, John 1, verse 18. I'll be in the NIV. Grab the Pew Bible. If you don't, if you don't have a Bible, grab the Pew Bible. Track this along, for page 714. Otherwise, on your device, find it, please. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Drop back. How did He do it? Drop back to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. What did we read just a moment ago? It was to remove this dark shadow that He came. Come on. The most beloved text in the whole book for someone who believes in the book. Chapter 3, verse 16. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That's why I came. Let's fast forward now all the way to the less than 12 hours and he'll be dead. John chapter 14. Take a look at this. John chapter 14. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Jesus, upper room. Eleven of the disciples are there. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, red letters, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So I'm visiting this week in a business in the village of Bering Springs, Michigan. I'm talking to the owner of the business, who's the dad. I bump into the son as I, get, as I go outside the business and fall into conversation with him. He's a young adult in his 30s, I would imagine. So we get, we fall into conversation and I'm, I'm just beginning to marvel. This is, this is insane. This guy is a spitting image of his dad, except for that big lumberjack beard that the boy has, the eyes, the nose, the lips, the cheeks, the way he talks. Wow. Is that what Jesus is saying? Hey, when you see me, you've seen the father. He looks just like me. Is that the point Jesus is making? Some sort of physical resemblance? Can't be. Look at verse 10. He goes on, verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Hey, guys, I'm not talking about five fingers and brown eyes. I'm talking about God the Father living out his love, his very character through me. You want to know what kind of a God your Father in heaven is? Take a look at me. That's it. Wow. The theologian Kevin Van Hooser 
summarizes Jesus' point right here. I, I love the way he puts it. I'll put it on the screen for you. The Son's humanity is the ultimate form of God's self-presentation. I like that. God's self-presentation. Jesus is God's definitive Word, and in His person and history corresponds to what it is that makes God, God. Right in that second God. God, God. You want to know what makes God, God? Look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. And by the way, not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. That skeptic a moment ago said, yeah, this God of the Old Testament. Listen to uh, John Peckham in his stirring book for me, The Love of God, A Canonical Model. Teaches right here in the seminary. Okay, I put Peckham's words on the screen for you. Depictions of divine compassion in the Old Testament and New Testament are strikingly similar to that manifested by Christ in the Gospels. Thus, Leon, Leon Morris contends that Christ's action is God's action. Christ's love is God's love. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. And what do we see when we see Jesus? Okay, let's go to a case study. There's a case study embedded in a very familiar story just a few pages back in the Gospel of John. So I have to set the story up. Don't go there yet. Let's set the story up. There are two players in this narrative, the protagonist and the antagonist, and both will interact with Jesus. Yes, they do. Both consider themselves, in fact, followers of Christ. And we would categorize both of them, since we've read the cliff notes of this story, we know. We would categorize both of them as red-blooded sinners, just like you and me. And one of them would say... Absolutely. And the other would vehemently deny that. All right? Both in this morality tale will be exposed, which means that we will come to the day of judgment for them both as we live this story. So it's going to be a case study. First, let's consider the protagonist, who happens to be a woman. And her name is Mary. Jesus has battled for the heart of Mary from the very first time they met. You see, Mary has been demonized by sexual impurity. Lock, stock, and barrel, ball and chain. But whenever she stands in the pure, unsullied presence of Christ, everything within her is just longing for that purity to become my purity. And Jesus knows it. I'll put these words on the screen for you. In Mark... Chapter 16, verse 9, she's described, not in the story we're about to read, but she's described, Mark 16, 9. One line on the screen. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, there she is, out of whom he had driven seven demons. The only reason the number is indicated there is because there's some sort of unfolding process in this. Something's going on here. Desire of Ages on the screen for you. Mary had been looked upon as a great sinner, but Christ knew the circumstances that had shaped her life. He might have extinguished every spark of hope in her soul, but he did not. It was he who had lifted her from despair and ruin. Now, jot it down. Seven times, seven separate times, she had heard his rebuke of the demons that controlled her heart and mind. She had heard his strong cries to the Father in her behalf. She knew how offensive his sin to his unsullied purity, and in his strength, she had overcome. Seven major prayer seasons. She's close enough to Jesus physically that she hears him sobbing to the Father, you've got to set 
this girl free. Don't ever be fooled into thinking that sometimes it just goes. Sometimes, even with Jesus and you, it takes time. And he's loving you. He's holding on to you through it. And in his presence, on the seventh time, that pleading, it just, it just, it got through. And he set her free. I want to put it back on the screen. Mary again, desire of ages. When to human eyes, see, Jesus never gave up on her. When to human eyes, her case appeared hopeless. And some of you today, your case to yourself is hopeless. Dwight, you don't know what I've been through. You do not know my story. My case is hopeless today. It is not. Human eyes would say hopeless. When to human eyes her case appeared hopeless, Christ saw in Mary capabilities for good. He saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption has invested humanity, that would be you and me, with great possibilities. And in Mary, these possibilities were to be realized. Through his grace, she became a partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen and whose mind had been a habitation of demons was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. Jesus never gave up on her. And in just a moment, you will see her in the case study. But there's not only a protagonist, there is an antagonist. He's a man, and his name is Judas. One day when Jesus and his disciples were gathered, Judas approached the group with, a, with a, just a very bold petition. I want to be tall, young, handsome, executive type, straight out of Wall Street. I want to be, yo, I want to be in your inner circle. Jesus comes and stands in front of Judas, and he looks into those dark eyes of that young man, and he reads the story. He knows how it will end. And we are told with mournful tones, Jesus said, foxes have dens and Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, if you think you're going to get rich with me, forget it. But Judas insisted, come on in. And as he did with Mary, Jesus sees in Judas divine possibilities if, if, if Judas will surrender his life to the Savior. Look at this, Desire of Ages on the screen. When Judas joined the disciples, he was not insensible to the beauty of the character of Christ. He felt the influence of that divine power which was drawing souls to the Savior. In connecting this man with himself, Jesus placed Judas where he might day by day be brought in contact with the outflowing of Jesus' own unselfish love. If Judas would open his heart, jot it down. That's the key word in this, in this case study that we're about to read. It's the, it's, it's all, it's the battle. It's everything in the heart. Everything is in the heart. If he would open his heart to Christ, divine grace would banish the demon of selfishness. Isn't that something? Mary had demons. Judas has a demon. It looks like we all have a demon that might be our favorite demon. Nobody is exempted from this battle.
If he would open his heart to Christ, divine grace would banish the demon of selfishness, and even Judas might become a subject of the kingdom of God, end quote. Seven times Jesus pleads for Mary. Makes you wonder, how many times did Jesus plead to the same father for Judas? How many times did he say, God, just give me this boy? He is so young. He has so much promise. I just look at him, and I'm thinking, if we could have him, Father, you and me, if we could have him for the kingdom, if he never gave up on Mary, do you think he would give up on Judas? Are you kidding? But sadly, lesson after lesson falls on a deaf ear. Desire of Ages back on the screen. When Judas came into association with Jesus, he had some precious, look at that, jot, jot that word down, precious traits. <laughs> precious traits. Great possibilities. He had some precious traits of character that might have been a blessing to the church. If Judas had been willing to wear the yoke of Christ, he might have been among the chief of the apostles, but he hardened his heart. Key word again, when his defects were pointed out and in pride and rebellion chose his own selfish ambitions and thus unfitted himself for the work that God would have given him to do. Mary the fallen, Judas the fallen, will meet one last time in the case study we're about to read. Let's go to it. Just a few pages back, chapter 12, John 12. Here's the case study. Watch this carefully. As you read, watch in your mind. Verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. Then Mary, there she is now, then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, you guessed it, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray Jesus, objected. Loud stage whisper. Everybody in the room hears it, including Mary. <laughs> Why was this perfume sold? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, a little parentheses from John. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. End of parentheses. Now Jesus speaks. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Leave Mary alone, Judas. Jesus knows the hearts of both the protagonist and the antagonist. And in that single pronouncement of judgment upon them both, Jesus reveals the truth. He is the judge of the human race. You say, oh, come on, come on. I mean, you, you, you're saying the judge of the whole earth? <laughs> the guys in the room didn't remember it that day at the dinner, but Jesus actually earlier in John had spoken these words. They're in your study guide. Jot it down, will you please? Jesus had announced, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Jot that word down. You mean the same Jesus of Nazareth is the end-time judge of the human race? That's what he said. And by the way, that's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Jot this one down. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of... What's the next word, ladies and gentlemen? What's the next word? Christ. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we did, 
while in the body. Plain and simple, Christ is the end time judge of the human race. And so the question that begs to be asked is, how will he treat the sinner in the judgment, since he's the judge? Well, we we know two sinners by name in this case study. How did he treat them? It is absolutely clear. He did not embarrass either sinner. Isn't that right? Couldn't he have worked Judas up one side and down the other? trashing him in front of this circle that had no idea, as Jesus did, who was pilfering, why their money never lasted? Of course he could have. Not a word. His only judgment to Judas, leave her alone. And in that eye, and in that eye lock, Judas now knows, Jesus knows about me. Five evenings later, when they're gathering in the upper room for the Last Supper, Judas elbows his way to the front of the group. He's going to be right beside Jesus. John Boy's on the other side, Judas on this side. What a stark contrast between the two disciples. Jesus gets up from his table, strips, strips to his waist, and begins to wash the feet of his proud, bickering. They're bickering on the eve of his execution. Disciples. And he begins with the feet of his betrayer. Desire of Ages on the screen. Jesus' heart was crying. How can I give thee up? The constraining power of that love was felt by Judas. And when the Savior's hands were bathing those soiled feet and wiping them with a towel, the heart of Judas thrilled through and through with the impulse then and there to confess his sin. But... He would not humble himself. He hardened his heart against repentance, and the old impulses for the moment pushed aside, put aside, again controlled him. And when later that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas is leading this profane mob to arrest his master. Judas feigns affection, walks across the clearing in the full moon, throws his arms around Jesus, kisses him on both cheeks. Master... Jesus steps back. He looks into those young, dark eyes, and Jesus says, friend, hey, friend, what are you doing here? When later that night, early the next morning after Judas' nefarious betrayal of Jesus, guilt-ridden Judas comes back to the courtroom. He's in anguish. He knows what he has done. And as it's described, his hoarse voice rang through the hall, sending a thrill of terror to all hearts. He's innocent. Spare him, O Caiaphas. Judas hurls 30 pieces of silver at the priests and then falls at Jesus' feet. Desire of ages. The Savior did not reproach his betrayer. He knew that Judas didn't repent. His confession was forced from his guilty soul by an awful sense of condemnation and a looking for judgment. But he felt no deep heartbreaking grief that he had betrayed the spotless Son of God and denied the Holy One of Israel. Yet, the judge spoke no word of condemnation. He looked 
pityingly upon Judas and said, For this hour came I into the world. Oh, Judas. Oh, Judas. How I have longed to draw me, draw you to me, as a mother hen draws her chicks. But you would not. And the record reads, Judas went out and hanged himself. The judge of the earth, now here's the point I need you to get. The judge of the earth has washed his feet. Jesus has done everything divinely and humanly possible to win that life back. I remind you, also this very same night, another disciple will with profanity deny his connection with this Jesus. And Jesus will forgive him. Which means if Judas had just lived through the weekend, if he had found the Master and had sobbed at his nail-scarred feet, the same Jesus would have just as assuredly forgiven Judas. It's okay. I take you back. God used it. Let's go. Standing in front of the judge, Judas is granted his free choice, and he says no. So, hey, here's the question. How about you and me? When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, how will it be for us? I said every text has a John in front of it. This one's true. Our last text, it's 1 John. Go to 1 John. This is, this is just, if it's not marked in your Bible, make sure you mark it. 1 John chapter 2. This is a stunning, stunning piece of word here. Get it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, you'll never forget this verse again. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children... This is John Boy, elderly now, a pastor, elderly pastor. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Can you believe it? This one who is the Savior of the whole world, this one who is the judge of the whole world, is also the advocate of the whole world. And fill that blank in. What's an advocate? He's the defense attorney for the human race. Now, I want you to just think about the logic of a courtroom for a moment. If you're the defense attorney and you're going with your client to the the bar... If, as it turns out, you're also the judge of the case, would you logically ever lose a case? Yes or no? Impossible. If you're the judge and the defense attorney, you win every single time. If somebody places his case or her case in your hands, you win for her, you win for him every single time. This is even better than that. He's not just the defense attorney. He's not just the judge. He's the Savior of the world. Hallelujah. Wow. Oh, Judas, Judas, how can I give you up? Give me your life. 
Give me your case. I will defend you. I will deliver you. Mary kept coming back. Judas, it's okay. You, you, you just keep coming back. I will save you. Come to me. I love this. Steps to Christ. Put it on the screen. Last quotation. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes. Often. Often. But we are not to be discouraged, even if we are overcome by the enemy. We are not cast off. We are not forsaken and rejected of God. No, 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 no. Christ is at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. And if He's at the right hand of the Father who is just like Him... Didn't Jesus say, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father? If He's at the right hand of the Father, everybody there, everybody there is on your side. The defense attorney, the Savior, and the judge. I mean, how can you lose? Just like Mary. Keep coming back. Mary. It's no wonder that the very first person the Savior greets upon His resurrection there in the garden is sobbing Mary Magdalene. And when she recognizes Him, she is so, she is so overcome with joy that through her tears, she has fallen to the ground and she is holding him by his ankles until Jesus finally has to say, yo, yo, Mary, you got to let, you got to let go. I haven't even been to the Father yet. I wanted to make sure that you heard the good news. You were the first one. Let me go and go tell the world that I go to my Father and your Father but I will come again, and I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You go. You tell. And ladies and gentlemen, in my humble opinion and conviction, there is no better news than that. That's why they call it the good news. Oh, what I wish for you what I wish for you is a life surrendered into the nail-scarred hands of Christ. Give your case to Him. He wins every time. We've just finished an incredible week of prayer here on this campus. And I want to give you an opportunity to respond. I want to pray with you first. And then we'll go to that Connect card. Oh, God, what do we say? This is who you are. Charmed by the matchless attractions of Christ, this is who you are. The judge, the Savior, the defense attorney, all in one. And I pray, oh, Father, that every one of us will choose to place into Jesus' nail-scarred hands our case in our life. In His name I pray. Amen.